Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. G'day everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week. My name's Matt Walsh, Jared Barker's with me as is champion data's Christian Jolly for another week. And there's plenty to chat about, including the sacking of Stuart Jew, the competition's most consistent teams, especially those late in games, and how the Bombers and the Blues have hit their straps, plus a bunch more. There's a heap to get to, Jared. Uh, good to have you in for the podcast again. Why don't you kick things off with uh, something you noticed from the week? Thanks, mate. Good to be back. Uh, there's something that I noticed. I'm going to talk about the insufficient intent rule because I think it's about time we scrap it comp- completely. I don't think there's room for it in our game anymore. So, well, Too harsh? Not harsh enough? Well, it's it's the fact that the umpires are asked to make a determination of what the players are thinking. It's a very ambiguous rule. It's either we get rid of it completely and bring in the deliberate rule or we bring in a last touch rule. I don't think there's an in-between. We cannot have the insufficient intent anymore. Too often, players are getting penalised for shanking it off the side of the boot. If you're going to do that, let's just make a last touch rule like they do in the sandful, which I think works quite well. Um, yeah, I just... I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's room for it when you're punishing a player if they're getting bumped off the footy while they're kicking it. Uh, yeah, some umpires might say, well... That's clearly not deliberate. He was bumped while he was kicking it. He was under pressure. Sometimes mm-hmm. they do make that case. Sometimes they don't. If you've got that much inconsistency, why why do we still persist with the rule? So if we were to look at, as in we as in the AFL, was to look at uh, a last touch, quote unquote, rule, it's going to go down with all oh, with the punters something calling something the last touch rule. But how, how could it feasibly well, work? How, how does it work in the SANFL right now? So how, how, does, how do the punters take the insufficient intent rule anyway? Um, well, in the sample, so it's last touch, obviously. Um, basically any kick that isn't touched by an opponent so a kick that goes untouched or a handball that goes untouched and goes out of bounds would just be paid as a last touch and free kick to the opposition unless there was a shepherd where opponent an opponent might be purposely shepherding uh, your teammate from mm-hmm. being able to touch the footy uh, or if there was an accidental say a toe poke over the boundary line in a, in a contest you can the ball can go out of the bounds if it comes off you in a context off ha- in a contest off hands mm-hmm. uh, but if it's off your boot or from a handball that would be last touch and a free kick I don't mind the way that they do it in the AFLW which is just between the arcs I think that probably makes more sense because you'd you'd be pretty stiff as a player to kick kick the ball in your forward 50 to a, to a teammate over kicking it, it going over his head and bouncing out of bounds if that's the last quarter of a grand final and the ball goes straight <laughs> back the to the opposition, well... The last quarter of a grand final. I, 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 I don't mind the rule if it's okay. in between the arcs. I think it's about time we do get rid of insufficient was intent. a specific incident that caught your eye? or was I just see it every... I've been thinking about it for over a year, <laughs> but... And needs his soapbox. Needs it to come just, on the podcast. It happens often. way too often in these, in these games where you see shanks that go 40 metres, bounce at right ankles, and you're paying insufficient intent. That's right. A lot of the time, it is genuinely insufficient intent. But when you're paying it so often now, yep. it's about time you either make it go back to deliberate or make it a last touch rule. Food for thought. Christian, something from the weekend that took your fancy. Yeah, well, championships, I think we've got one more game to go coming up this weekend. I think Vic Country take on Vic Metro. But the uh, Allies have already sort of been deemed champions of the under-18 championships. So the Allies are made up of, obviously, NT, Queensland, New South Wales and Tassie kids all coming together to sort of play a team. Um, yeah, won four and zip this year. So to win the championship, first time ever. So they've been around since about 2016. Previously coming into the season, there were five wins and 16 losses. So obviously they're academy kids and the kids that are sort of new to footy and we're trying to sort of grow the game in that in, in those states. Mm. Um, yeah, struggled for the first few years, but yeah, dominated this year. Well, we have uh, Jasper Chelipa who does his uh, power rankings of the draft crop that's coming up for, for later this year. He does them every every month. Um, July's ones uh, just came out last month. And yes, he's got a number of the allies in his top 20, whether they are Suns Academy products or Tasmanian-born uh, players. And, and you, we're kind of in this interesting... Um, period where the Tassie team is slated to be coming into the competition in a few years when these kids will probably be 23, 24, 25 years of age, potentially wanting to come home. I, my, The question I have, and maybe we'll get Jasper on the potty again soon, is how likely are teams going to be wanting to draft Tasmanian-born players if the likelihood is that they'll just want to come back to I'm, I'm always big on that they're still an asset so if you think you're going to draft them and lose them to Tassie in four years time then mm. you still just lick your lips and think well we can get a second round pick in four years time from Tassie so I know you, you, you might not get the same value as what you take a player 
But I wouldn't think any club would avoid taking a player that they know they're going to have for at least three or four years yeah. before he before he even thinks of leaving. Interesting. Uh, if you want to read more about the Allies and their um, their season this year, Jasper has uh, written a yarn. Depending on when you're listening to this, it'll be out Wednesday uh, on ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL. Uh, something I noticed, I'm... Big on the percentage thing. We've talked about sort of percentage reversion to the mean a bit. Collingwood's made us look a little bit silly at times with this kind of stuff. But an interesting little nugget that I picked up on the weekend. So we're 17 rounds through the season. Sydney are currently in the bottom four. So they're 15th on the ladder. And they have a percentage of 110.8. Now, we talked about the Pies. And last year, they finished in the top four with a percentage of 104.3. And so you're looking at 11 places different on the ladder. And Sydney's percentage... Currently, as it sits, is well, quick maths six point five percent higher than the the, the Pies finished twenty twenty two. I think it, I'll have to double check this week. It's still the highest, but I think it was the highest still for a, a team outside the top thirteen. I think we looked at so they're now still fifteenth or fourteenth yes, at the 15th, moment. So yeah. yeah, it'd be the, one of the highest percentage to be that low on the ladder of, in all time. I would love to know if you take out the West Coast win. Obviously, one hundred seventy one points does help the percentage a lot, but just seeing that one hundred ten point eight, if they can string a few wins together, that's the sort of percentage that just could help them. It sounds weird saying this about a team in currently in the bottom four, but could they still make finals, Jared? I don't think they can personally, but it's interesting because the Dogs only have 103%. I say only 103%, but they're one game out of the top four. So they're <laughs> almost doing something similar to Collingwood, not playing the same way that Collingwood were in the way those close wins last year. But in terms of their percentage, they're pretty low for a team that's one game out of the top four as well. So teams above Sydney that have worse percentages. So you look at... Um, the teams currently 5th, 6th and 7th you said the Dogs 103.9 106.8 St Kilda and 107.1 Essendon so these are the kind of teams and positions on the ladder where if the teams below them so Adelaide percentage of 116.6 Carlton 107.8 uh, and the Swans as we said they're the spots that are kind of in jeopardy as you come towards the back end of the season because if they drop a couple of games, their percentage isn't higher than the teams below them. Given the draw with Carlton and Geelong, it's, it's, it's essentially Geelong, Carlton, Richmond and, and Sydney competing for maybe one of those last spots in the top eight because uh, if you're an Essendon or a St Kilda or, or a Bulldogs and you've got mm. that those low top eight percentages, it's only really Adelaide with 116 that can actually leapfrog you if you're on the same amount of wins. Mm. Um yeah, the, the half point that the Cats or the Blues are behind them, it probably won't matter that they do have that low percentage. Uh, interesting. Interesting. It's really tight. It's really tight towards we go Fascinating towards the, run home, isn't the it? The back end of the year. When was the last time we had a team in the bottom four, seven weeks out from finals, still a chance of making it? Yeah, that's <laughs> a great yeah, question. Yeah, question. Yeah. Oh, but sorry, yeah, Chris. <laughs> I feel like it's just one... Of, we say it every year that it's tight around the middle, but I, I know we say like it every year. This year is different. It's more protracted than ever. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of wider. There, sort there's of a bottom from, three and then a middle... 10 at yeah. least uh, so if your team is uh, in that middle band perhaps you're still a chance alright uh, plenty to chat to as I said off the top uh, Stuart Jew breaking news when you're listening to this this is 11.15 uh, we've hit record on this so Stuart Jew been sacked by the Gold Coast Suns um, just haven't shown enough improvement basically is, is the reasoning behind it they're 7-9 and nine this year uh, had a 33 point loss to the power on the weekend Six seasons at the club, or almost six full seasons, no yeah. finals. Um, the win percentage, not great, Jared. Not long enough, though, six seasons. For you think? It, uh, what, what improvement do they want to see when they're losing all these top-end talent to other teams, which they have over their, their short journey in the AFL? So, Well, he, he, didn't, he had the worst um, winning percentage of any active coach. He does at the moment. A better winning percentage than any other Gold Coast coach before him Low bar. as well. Low bar, but still higher so if, if they want to talk improvement well there's a technical improvement there I know that's a bit tongue in cheek but I just I find the timing of it all quite baffling why would the the hierarchy of the Gold Coast Suns come to a decision in round 17 or 18 where we are now where they're on 7 wins 3 wins behind their club record of 10 wins the 7 games to go yeah it's probably far fetched to suggest that they might make the finals this year I don't think they will they probably won't but how are you receiving this news as a player when the club comes to this decision? You learn your coach's fate. He's out the door. What what message does it send them? Oh, we're throwing in the tower for this season. That's it then. Seven games left. What, you just think we're not going to make finals? They're three wins away and four wins away from having a club record season of 10 or 11 wins. They are... Baffling. As we said, they're in that middle band of clubs. Mm. Uh, and a, a few... Good performances could see them well and truly back in the race. But I think we talked about this either last week or the week before. Five losses this year by seven or more goals. 
which yeah. is incredibly damaging when you talk about, yes, you might scrape a few wins here and there, but the losses have been big. Yeah, and the fourth most, you know, goal streaks conceded between, you know, uh, just only the uh, bottom three teams below on West Coast, North and Hawthorne have conceded more three-goal runs. But even just looking at, I mean, where they sat pre-buy, um, going into it, I think, you know, they... they had just had a win over Adelaide, I think, coming into the bye. Um, we're looking pretty good, and that was starting to sort of re-establish their season and find an identity. Sort of, they've played three games since the bye, or four games, sorry, since the bye. They haven't won contested possessions in any of those games, so they smashed Hawthorne uh, by nine goals, won the game, broke even in contested possessions. So you think about going away and, and working on, on things over the bye and trying to fix, you know, uh, some of your weaknesses and sort of make sure your positives are still up. They were number one for contested possession differential going into the bye, uh, and eight, sort of 16th coming out of the box. So since in the last four weeks, since and obviously haven't won it. 18th for pressure applied after the buy. Eighth pre-buy, and then just looking at points scored from your forward half intercept. So again, being able to lock your ball, lock the ball in your forward half, and being able to score. That's a, a lot of that's to do with how you're set up behind the ball. 17th for points from forward half intercepts post buy. Uh, only West Coast worth. They were 10th pre-buy. So there's a whole lot of numbers that have actually fallen off the cliff in the last three or four weeks as well. Where we we were talking about Gold Coast were almost ready to take the next step. It's almost like they've taken a clear step backwards in just a four-week period. The buyers killed him, mm. it seems. Um, he was declared safe last week. So this is what you were talking about before. Yep. Uh, Mark Evans comes out and says, no, 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 there's no way that we're going to be getting rid of him. Um, but the obvious elephant in the room, and now this is all going to be a little bit speculative and, until we know more, um, is is Damien Hardwick. And, and all I can get from reading between the lines is the impression that um, the Suns have either gone to the AFL, they've gone to Dimmer, they've got you know, handshake nod agreements saying, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll happily come in if, if you want me to come in. And that's the reason they've moved on due at this stage with the club still technically in contention, but but probably not, uh, and with, with seven games to go. Yeah, that, this is why I say the decision to get rid of Stuart Jew isn't... I'm not against that. I, I can understand why they're cutting ties with him, but it's the timing of it that's really suspicious to me. And you bring up Damien Hardwick. I wonder whether there was a verbal agreement between Damien yep. and his management and the Suns hierarchy as well. It wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. That's the only thing that I can think of as being a, a, you know, that warrants this decision being made at this stage of the season. They have to know who they're bringing in already. But then if that was the case... To to run on his deal still. Correct. But why would you not just wait until the end of the season and see what they can do? Because there are other clubs that might sack coaches, get a head start on... on If there was a verbal agreement with Dimmer... Yes. Would another? Would you think another club oh, swoop in? I mean, I don't know if, if you know you could, you could talk about any club. You could talk about West Coast if they decide to um, part ways with Simpson. If if you know Dimmer looks at that and goes, he's playing in front of fifty thousand in Perth every week um, mm. at that brand new stadium, uh, big fan base, as opposed to uh, what is it these days? Heritage Bank Stadium with yep. a fifty fifty split in the crowd. Uh, you never at, know. At so. half at half time, lay the groundwork early. I get it. Half time of the Port Adelaide game. Are they sacking yeah, Stewart? That's a great question. Honestly. Ah, look, statistically, they were right in that game. They've they lost the to the two best teams in the competition the last two weeks before deciding to get rid of him. I know this decision may have already been in the works for quite a long time. Yeah. But to do it the two weeks after losing to the two best teams in the competition, of which you were beating Port Adelaide at half time, your seven wins, seven games to go, I just find it extremely baffling. And I worry that this could cause more dominoes to fall in terms of keeping players, which mm. they've struggled to do in the past. But maybe it is because they think. Damien Hardwick in. could come in and uh, yeah rally, rally the troops. Um, obviously, questions will be raised about the viability of the club as well. You talk about crowds being down, the fact that it does lose money as an AFL entity. But the flip side is what we've just talked about, these allied sides that come in and there are Suns Academy players. I think there's at least three that look like they're going to be extremely good prospects. And it means that the Suns are going to have to make some tough choices in terms mm. of draft picks and, and matching bids and all this kind of stuff that comes. So... I guess it's not all doom and gloom. No. But, um, it's not about time to be a Gold Coast coach right now, <laughs> considering the talent that they might have coming through the door. So if it is Damien right Hardwick... Right wrong time, perhaps, for yeah, Stewie. Well, you never know. I, yeah, I'd, I, I would have liked to see him see out his contract and have this year of drafting as well, given the Allies just won the championships. Mm, interesting. So. Uh, we'll see what happens with the Suns in coming weeks and months. Uh, Christian, the fabled four-quarter performance... Uh, like to sort of throw that around and, and teams and supporters love to throw that around we'd love to string together four quarters players like to say it, a bit of a cliche how hard is it to actually achieve a four quarter performance yeah well there's a couple of games even this week um, we'll talk about one of the games where a team won all four quarters in this game but probably didn't dominate and we're probably lucky to win really but uh, it is it's sort of interesting to see there is clearly teams that start well and finish well but 
looking across the competition, especially this year, it doesn't seem like there's any team that's sort of up and about for every single quarter. So Collingwood's the best example of that. So if you look at Collingwood's point differential by quarters, they're plus 146 points in first quarters, which is the highest ranked of any team. They're plus 88 in fourth in second quarters, which is fourth. Negative 18 in third quarters, which is 13th. And then they come again, plus 180 in final quarters, which is about 10 goals better than anyone else. So you can almost see that third quarter to them isn't too important to Collingwood games. I mean, I think they're about a... They've still got a better than 50% winning record in those quarters. They've just been outscored by three goals in total. So even the top team on the ladder can't quite string together consistently. Correct, but, but you know with Collingwood, they're going to come out of the box and, and, and smash yep. you hard, and they're going to finish strongly. So it's almost, again, it's if, if for any cr- cricket fans out there, I'm not a huge cricket fan, but I do know that one day internationals are s- sort of going a similar way, the 50-over game where you sort of take the 10, 15 overs and really smash it. And then for the next 20, 25, you're just sort of Consolidate. yeah, absorbing the game, if, 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 if you want to put it that way, and then coming hard at the end. So that's very much uh, how sort of Collingwood have played. Adelaide were a similar story. But then you've also got some teams like the Swans. The Swans have probably been the biggest flip around. I think they were a very good second half and final quarter team last year. This year, they're sort of they're 21, 11, 21 wins and 11 losses in quarters in the first half this season. And we saw it on a Friday night against Richmond where they were in front at halftime and dominated the first half. But they're 12-19 and 19 in second halves this year. So just letting teams overrun them in the second part of games. We saw Frio on the weekend, another slow start. That's four times this year they've scored either zero or one goal in the first quarter. They seem to be a, a side that just can't keep going early. Yeah, amazing. So two, 14, two wins and 14 losses in first quarters this season. And then you look at their next the next three quarters they're nine and seven eight and eight and seven and eight so they're back to 50 mm. percent for all the other quarters they just can't get their starts going at all and i think yeah as i said two and 14 in first quarters i think one of those wins was about two or three point victory uh you know in front of about two or three points at quarter time so it wasn't a big a big one but yeah they're sort of uh be very interesting and i did look a few weeks ago at their inside 50 differential i think they go from about 13th in the first quarter till about second or third in the fourth quarter so they they do finish stronger than uh, then they start, but they usually find themselves too far behind. They haven't had a lot of comeback exciting wins for you. Uh, the Giants, really interesting, kind of just neither here nor there, 11th, 14th, second, uh, 11th, 14th and 12th in the first three quarters, but plus 57 to be third best uh, in the last quarter. Yeah, so yeah, 11th, 14th and 12th for the first three quarters and then up to third for points differential in the final quarter. So finishing the game out strongly, but then you look across a quarter. So we look at uh, the zero to 10 minute mark of a quarter, the 10 to 20 minute mark of the quarter and then 20 minutes onwards of a quarter, so time on. So looking at those, so first 10 minutes of quarter, Giants are plus eight this year, which is 10th. Across the 10 to 20 minute mark of quarter, so the middle part of quarters, they're negative 112 points, which is 15th. And then from the 20 minute mark of quarters, they're plus 82, which is fifth. So again, finish game stronger in the fourth quarter, but they actually actually finish quarters stronger in, in the time on period. Is that something to do with the game plan, do you think, the way that they like to move the ball quite quickly, run carry, just try and be fitter, I guess, than their opponents? Again, yeah, it is. It's, it, GWS are very much into the pure ball, you know, a lot of quick ball movement and their, their ball movement game, their contest work is sort of mid-table. So it might be a little bit like that. But, yeah, you, you wonder how much of it is by design and how much of it is sort of, yeah, a team sort of being reactive. They, they let the opposition get a jump on them and then sort of come back and work their way back into a quarter or a game, which as a Carlton supporter, I sort of noticed that a little bit. Um, and I was looking this year, I think they're six and 10 uh, in first quarters this year, but 11 and five in second quarters and one of the best second quarter teams. So that's why I do give a little bit of credit to Voss because I watch a lot of Carlton games that things that are broken in the first quarter seem to get pretty well fixed in the second quarter. It's just whether Carlton can sort of come back and win in the second half. But there is a lot of teams that sort of Either, yeah, just need a bit of time to work themselves into games. Is there any quarters. merit in the... Zach? The pr- no, <laughs> uh, Jackson. No, the, is, <laughs> is there any merit in the whole premiership quarter being the third quarter? Well, is that, is that, that a real that thing? Is, that's no what good? I said. The, the well, that's that's yeah, what I mean. Collingwood, yeah. it's, it's the worst Surely quarter, it's so. better to be a good first quarter team or last quarter team. I think being a, the best last quarter team is more important than starting a game well. Well, you just Surely. have to be in the game, don't you? And I think the yeah. earlier... Sorry, the, I mean, the last quarter, by the third... By three-quarter time... You know the margin's probably not going to be as wide as it could be in the last. Mm. So obviously games are going to be tighter. So if you're better in last quarters, as long as you're either in the lead or close to the lead, uh, and you're strong in the fourth quarters, your odds on to keep winning. Yeah, and it, it does seem like good teams finish games stronger. So again, I think you see the top teams are stronger in last quarters and they're finishing games off stronger. So another example, Hawthorne, a young team this year, 
If you look at quarter wins, so eight wins in the first quarter, six in the second, six in the third, and five in the last. So it's yep. almost that perfect profile of, yep, young, up-and-coming team. Give it a crack. Start, start games off pretty pretty well, but yeah, probably get over run towards the end. What about players? We see, um, I mean, we talked about clutch players last uh, year, I'm pretty sure, where we sort of looked at those that have the most rating points in fourth quarters or whatever it might be. But are there players that just rack up the ball more in, in certain quarters compared to others? Yeah, again, looking at... Uh, Mainly looking at first and fourth quarters, sort of just to comparing the two. So if you look at opening quarters this year, Tom Green is actually the biggest ball winner in first quarters this year at GWS with 9.1 disposals in first quarters this year. He drops to 10th in fourth quarter, so not a huge drop-off. Rory Lair's the one for me. He's sort of, I think, just one or two disposals behind Tom Green in the opening quarter, so 9.1 per game as well, uh, equal first or second, whichever way you want to look at it. He drops to six disposals in the fourth quarter, which is equal 53rd. So a huge drop-off for Rory Laird. Uh, in terms of the way he starts games, but sort of it's similar to Adelaide as a team. So Jordan Dawson, sixth for disposals, one in quarter one, then drops to 20th in quarter two, 22nd in quarter three, and equal 26th in quarter four. So those two players, both at Adelaide, sort of, yeah, starting games really well, and Adelaide are uh, the third best quarter one team this year, but sort of not finishing as strong. Um, And guys that go the other way, I mean, Clayton Oliver's 9.2 disposals per fourth quarter this year. Uh, he only ranks 12th for, for uh, disposals per first quarter. So, again, Clayton Oliver's probably one that finishes games off stronger than he starts. Uh, Noah Anderson, another interesting name there that probably doesn't start as hot as what others do, but does finish quite strongly. Yeah, very sort of opposite to the to the team that he plays for. The Suns are probably, yeah, more likely to fade in the game. But, yeah, Noah Anderson, equal 38th for disposals, one in first quarters, equal 23rd in the second, equal 28th in the third but fifth in quarter four. So he's had some big last quarters, Noah Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, in our stocks column, uh, Stocks Up, Stocks Down, which you can read on the website espn.com.au forward slash AFL. Jared, this week, uh, just noted that uh, a few small forwards had been struggling of late uh, recent weeks. So Charlie Cameron's been quite out of form. Cosie Pickett's been struggling struggling a little bit. And we do seem to say um, at some point, especially early in the year, you know, is this a year that we can see the small forward win the Coleman, whether we're talking about someone like Cameron or someone like Eddie Betts or Stephen Milne going back a few more years even. Uh, but it kind of never eventuates. And there always is this sort of drop-off and this separation from the pack of the bigs and the smalls. Mm. Um, what do we... I mean, I'm not trying to ask you to diagnose the issue, but... Is this something that the stats back up, that, that small forwards or general forwards just can't quite consistently kick bags? Yeah, if you, if you put it that way, yes. So, again, I looked at probably going the other way. Do they start better than they, you know, do general forwards kick more goals at the start yeah. of years? Than Nicer weather, the maybe. But there was probably nothing in that. It's very random in terms yeah. of the goal distribution for general forwards. Can't handle the cold, you reckon? Charlie oh, Cameron. I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, as I said, there's sort of no evidence in that. I mean, we've seen some big, you know, general forward rounds in, in rounds 15 and 16 in past years where they've kicked goals. But... In terms of, yeah, looking at a position on the field and in terms of your consistency output, so we measure the you know how consistent uh, players' output are. So I looked at every position across the competition. Key forwards are the most inconsistent um, position going around, so they have a consistency rating of 59%. So, so what does that 59% refer to? Basically, yeah, 100% means you're producing the same thing. So if you come out and get five disposals and kick one goal one week and get five disposals and one goal the next week, you're on 100%. If you end up with 10 disposals and two goals the next week, you've got a 50% consistency rating. You've had one Better bad game, game and then yep. you've had mm-hmm. one game that's twice as good. So, yeah, it's sort of just looking at the fluctuation in between games. So key forwards, yeah, can be... Yeah, exactly that. They can kick two goals one week and come out and kick four goals the next and then go goalless the third week. And, and general forwards are very much similar in, in that role. So, again, you look at a general defender and a key defender, their consistency rating's up at about 70%. So 70% of games are, you know, same output. Whereas, at, yeah, as I said, at key forward, it's 59%. General forward, it's 64%. Um, but if you look at things like, you know, a midfielder's disposals consistency rating. So a midfielder for their disposals per game have a consistency rating of 83%. So if you play midfield, you usually get around... 20 to 25 to 30 disposal, same sort of number. A goals consistency rating for key forwards, 55% and 53% for general forwards. So, again, a lot of that is going to be due yeah. to what's happening further up the field and how well your team's Probably playing. Probably the, the toughest position to play. But it is. It, you, it's hard to sort of watch a key forward and just get a consistently yeah. week-to-week output from any key or general forward across the comp. doesn't surprise yeah. me that key defenders are the most well-off because I feel like defenders uh, and, and the way defence is set up uh, these days, Jared, is that it is a lot more team-oriented, where it's a lot harder to be working as a team in a forward line to get consistent results. Yep. Whereas you can kind of employ the use of uh, an interceptor or a third man in or zones and, and, and midfielders dropping back. Whereas forwards, you know, it's harder to be a forward because everyone's conspiring against you. Mm. Um, and it's at the end of the day, you know, if, if 
two of your teammates are going for a mark in the pack, as it happens a lot, you know, in, in footy week to week. Um, there's a chance that your own teammate may even spoil you. So I feel like the key forward consistency it doesn't surprise me, uh, and the key forward, sorry, the key defender number also doesn't surprise me just because of the way that footy's played. That doesn't. They don't need to have outstanding games though. Key defenders. The, the bottom line is they need to stop their forwards from touching the footy. So in this case, whoever's mending up on Cozzy Pickett and Charlie Cameron, the two small forwards who are probably struggling in the last month, they're doing their job. But the thing with small forwards is you can always throw them into the midfield or find another avenue to get into the game. Whereas defenders, if your key defenders had one touch to three-quarter time, you're not going to chuck them in the midfield. Gets it. So it doesn't matter if you're a defender. That's why it's more alarming for... Uh, small forwards, which it is a hard position to to play, but goalless in two of his last four games, Charlie Cameron with possession numbers under ten touches, and Cozzy, three of his last five games less than six touches. You want to see more from him? I want to see more from him, especially Cozzy because he had a lot of CBAs early in the season. Is it time to get him back in the midfield? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, good point. Uh, segment we've had the last uh, or this year sorry um, the key stat from every game where we go through every game for the week Christian brings uh, where it was won or lost uh, and we take a look there Richmond versus Sydney on Thursday night Jared Jacob Bauer's debut um, would oh, you stiff isn't it would you rather have a debut like that where you're playing for a couple of minutes and then do a hammy and you might miss for a while or be one of those poor blokes who debuted as medical sub in years gone by where they don't actually get on the ground Oh, you'd want to get on the ground even if you you pull the hammy. He had a good. There was a good kick inside fifty. He had a couple of touches. <laughs> two, two good touches. Two, yeah, they both like, like they were in one the score one, involvement. Yeah. But yeah, he's done his job, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> question without notice: <laughs> Are the injuries too much for, to overcome for the Tigers? We talked about how they're in that middle band as well. Tom mm. Lynch probably out for the season. Uh, Short still out. Gibkiss, Tarrant's been probably not going to come back this year either. Um, is it just a, a little bit too much to ask of the Tigers this year? No, I don't. I don't mind the way that they're lining up. Them. They're obviously undermanned, which is going to go work against them. But they have still got games against West Coast, uh, North Melbourne, and St Kilda, and Hawthorne in there as well. So there's some winnable games in there, regardless of who's in there, who's not in there. We saw that on Thursday night. Uh, Shea Bolton steps up. Dusty Martin, if he plays one out in the goal square, is always tough to manage but it was their midfield game as well with Prestia back with Taranto mm. as well so yeah I think they've got enough weapons in that team they threw Voston forward and he's one of the most underrated defenders in the comp in, in my eyes as well so there's enough there still for them to compete do you I don't know if you measure this but um, Jack Revolt made an interesting point after the game firstly long sleeves don't think we've seen that weird Richmond player yeah. since uh, I think it's, it was Brett Delidio was the last What's one to wear hiding one. a new tap or something yeah very interesting um, but he said that uh, Richmond has played he, he I think the quote was something like we've played in uh, a lot of wet weather games this year do you guys measure nah, conditions nah we've done it in the past we've tracked yeah but not really not okay yet. Um, where was this game won and lost yeah, so it was. It was, and again, probably the rain coming. I think the rain started in the second quarter and got heavy across half time. But it was basically won by Richmond shutting down the game and making a contest. So first half, again, looking at the possessions that were won across the game, thirty-five percent of possessions were won from a contest in the first half across both teams, uh, which is a low number. In the second half, that jumped to forty-six percent. Which, again, if that was a whole game, that would have been the third highest in a game this season. So Richmond and the rain made Sydney sort of. Uh, it, it shut Sydney down and took away their ball movement. So again, they took 45 uncontested marks uh, in the first half. Sydney uh, finished with 22 or 21, sorry, in the second half, um, and that's what Richmond really, really, really took away. So it made it a more stoppage-based game, and um, Richmond dominated clearances and contested possessions. Um, the dogs in the Collingwood, Jared. You were sort of talking about oh, off air just before in the office, talking about Bailey Smith and his struggles, mm. uh, and just how he hasn't been used in the centre at all for for a number of weeks. Yeah, so eleven touches at thirty six percent efficiency against the Pies. Five of those touches were in the last quarter alone. So he was at six on six at three quarter time. That's his lowest uh, possession tally since his debut year, which doesn't include when he went off the ground in a twenty twenty game mm. uh, via a head clash. But. Uh, no CBAs this week, but two CBAs a week earlier, and his most previous game before that, two CBAs then. So in his so last centre bounce attendances, yeah, correct. So his last three matches, he's had four centre bounce attendances. But this is something that Luke Beveridge tends to do. He's almost got an embarrassment of riches uh, in the midfield. There, we know that how deep they run. Libar, Bontempelli, Trelaw, Kate. Well, um, Caleb Daniel runs through there now as well. And then McRae and Smith as well. McRae had no CBAs against the Pies too, uh, but he still managed his 25 or 26 touches. He had 20 CBAs the week before. So they do mix it around a little bit. 
Well, the Dogs did beat Collingwood in contested possession, which is a, a rare thing for the Pies to get beaten there. Yeah, so it's actually third time this season that Collingwood have beaten in contested possessions and inside 50s. So again, something that they were doing last year. They were sort of in the negative for those numbers last year, not winning a lot of contests, not winning a lot of inside 50s, but scoring from that back-end ball movement that was just so... Um, so he so can, exciting he, to watch. can look at that and say, well, what we did actually worked. And, he, and, and they, they smashed him in round nine last year as well. Like, yeah. They smashed him on the scoreboard and in, they had 40 more contested possessions and from clearances. But for Collingwood, it's just, again, just a little watch at the moment. So it's the third time this season they've been beaten in those two stats, contested possessions inside 50s. It was round 13 uh, against Melbourne, round 15 against Adelaide, and then this week against Collingwood. So three of their past five games where Melbourne really took away that ball movement from him and dominated that forward half. And Adelaide was for two or three quarters had Collingwood as well but probably you know stuck in their in their back half and the Collingwood ball movement wasn't the same so maybe there's a there's a sort of hint of the good teams being able to sort of slowly match it with Collingwood now but again they, they got the four points so um a lot of that was yeah third quarter it was 13 to 11 the inside 50 count in the third quarter but I think it was almost six goals to zip mm. uh, basically the forward half efficiency 77 percent of the time Collingwood uh, hit the target in their forward half 53 percent for Bulldogs across that third quarter uh, Brisbane and West Coast, uh, 81 point win in the end. If we're going to keep calling out each other's horrible calls, JB, you went with 148 points. So you're only uh, uh, taking the 60, mickey, 67 off there in the end. <laughs> Christian, I think you said 80 to 90. So you're well within that range. And I was within a kick. I said 87. So just thought I'd sneak that one in there. But um, look, it went to plan for the Lions at home. It did. And it was uh, just an interesting start. So I was uh, watching with my son and I got quite excited that the first Four goals that I noticed will all come from clearances. Uh, and then they kicked their fifth one. I think the commentator had said it. So then all, my son, all of a sudden, my son's asking what's a score from clearance. So I've started to teach him <laughs> score sources. Uh, and How old is he? Uh, he's six. Oh, um, get him in early. But yeah, you can come on the pod next week and he can explain to you what a difference between a, a clearance and a turnover is now. But yeah, they, they kept going and they kicked their first goal in the second quarter, which also from a stoppage. So that was eight goals uh, straight to start the game, all from clearances, which is an equal record. Um, across the you know the last 15 years that we've been doing score sources, so we know that that's Brisbane's uh, you know strength is is keeping the ball in contest and and sort of winning those clearances. But um, yeah, if you look at the clearances in that time, it was 15 to 13 Brisbane's way, so they were plus two in clearances, but it was eight goals to zip from those clearances. So clearly that's that was Brisbane's strength, keep the game in tight, and 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 we'll be able to score from there. Whereas as I said, West Coast took the ball out of the clearances okay, but they couldn't get any territory or anything going from them. Uh, Giants and the Hawks. Uh, Giants were pretty good. Cornelio thirty and three. Now we talked about this on the pod a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Jake talking about the thirty and three rule. And rare game. Yeah, rare game. Rare to have. Th- sorry, that's thirty disposals and three goals for those listening at home. Uh, the ten coaches votes. Does that mean it translates into three Brownlow votes? Surely. Well, we need to ask Jake Michaels this question, well, don't we? Gallivanting around Europe as we speak. We yeah. can't really do that. Sipping the vino. Uh, but yes, no, really good game from Cornelio. Uh, Josh Kelly, on the other hand, was really mm. well held. Finn McGuinness um, held Kelly to six touches, which is his lowest since 2015, would you believe? Um, which suggests that there's probably room for taggers, and McGuinness is uh, one of the good young ones out yeah. there. Can he become the next A-grade, number one tagger in the competition? Who's Ryan Crowley, yes. Crowley, last A-grade tagger. Just pure take. He's only played six games this year. McGinnis. In and out of the team. Used a couple of times. Yeah, but used in, in different roles too. He's played a bit of uh, defense, a little bit of forward. I think he was the sub last week. Uh, sorry, the week before, mm. round 17. He obviously tagged Josh Kelly really hard and kept him to six touches. The last time he was used, I think, as a pure tagger was round one against Zach Merritt. And he held him to eight touches to half time before stopping that tagging role. And then Merritt went on to have 29 touches. So there might be something here brewing for Finn McGuinness. Uh, should he have been moved to Cornelio at some point? I don't think he can because then there's always that risk that Kelly yeah. gets off the hook, then he might be Blue the one that has. a wonderful thing. Yeah. Going by our numbers, though, we did have a look to see if he was moved on Cornelio at all. He was moved off Kelly in the second half and put on Cumming and Callahan for mm. a little while. So it, it, it was a weird one. I think he'd done so well on Kelly that they sort of just. Spooked him. Moved away, yeah, moved away and thought, oh, well, Kelly's done for the game. But they didn't move him on to the next dangerous uh, midfielder, which is Cornelio. But, yeah, this game, it was just a, it was just interesting watching the two styles. We both, both, you know, new coaches, and I think both of them are, are implementing ball movement and exciting ball movement as being their, their sort of their number one starting point for, for these two teams. So, But it was very much Giants were a kick team and, and Hawthorne was a handball team across the whole game. So... Uh, if you look at things like, you know, Giants took 103 marks, Hawthorne took 54. But looking at handball receives, Giants had 99, Hawthorne had 149. 
Um, so you look at the success they had from moving the ball from one end to the other. So Giants, 40, you know, 49 defensive 50 chains, 14 times they went inside 50. Hawthorne had 47 defensive 50 chains and went inside 14 times. So almost, almost identical, uh, you know, success rate of getting it ball end to end. But the Giants kicked 5-5 five, five from those entries and the Hawks kicked 0-4. So it's just that final final kick in front of goal that the Giants were sort of doing better. You know, got five goals better. But again, it was sort of, I think Hawthorne matched it pretty well for, for the whole game in terms of what they want to do in terms of having the ball moving and, and moving it quickly by hand um, and just fell short in the end. Uh, St Kilda and Melbourne, look, St Kilda were right in this, I feel. like, And they, I know they had injury issues and ended with... Um, with only two on the bench at the end of it, and you've got a uh, statistic about the interchange rotations in a second, Christian, but they were kind of there, and it was really when, when Max King went down, May was able to sort of start patrolling that back line a fair bit, but the Saints had their opportunities. They were a bit wasteful in front of goal. The Ds still having these offensive woes. We've talked about their inability to kick a, a big score, and they've got a, a game against the side that they're going to need to kick a big score against this week in Brisbane. Mm. Um, where do you kind of see the Ds at the moment? I know they're still top four, but they're just sort of just staying there aren't they they are i think they'll, they'll win enough games to probably stay fourth but they still haven't scored more than 80 points since round nine now and they're averaging 66 points per game since that uh since that week so there's obviously those those scoring troubles but petrarca forward he kicked four goals i don't think he's going to do that every week he was uh an, an answer on the weekend but i still think melbourne were pretty lucky to be winning that game i don't like using the word lucky but had the saints had their rotations as you said they played well enough to beat the d's at marvel well, that's kind of not not so necessarily lucky, but like the the Saints were, were winning a lot of these statistical yeah, areas so, uh, mm. and just were unable to convert the, their chances. Yeah, so more contested possessions, more inside fifties, more shots, more uncontested possessions. They broke even in the clearances. Um, if you look at the two forward lines, like forward fifty versus forward fifty, Saints had twenty four more disposals in their forward fifty. They had six more ground ball gets. They took more marks inside their forward fifty. Had twice as many forward fifty tackles than Melbourne had. But this is the one that, that got me. And then I looked at sort of, you know, was it one or two quarters that just got St. Kilda? Melbourne won all four quarters in that game. So you talk about a four-quarter effort and and you usually think, okay, a team wins all four quarters and it's the most dominant game ever. But as I said, they've won all four quarters, yet barely won any of the stats. And, and you can make a case that St. Kilda should have won that game. Expected scores, I think, did have them winning. It was the only only result of the round that was flipped. So, yeah, they did, they did everything they could, just couldn't get the result. But, yeah, the, the interchanges killed them. So it was... Uh, Second fewest interchanges moves made in a game this year, but not by dip- choice. Yeah, exactly by because necessity. of the injury, and 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 Melbourne were able to make twenty one more moves than St Kilda, which was also one of the biggest differentials of the last three or four years. So, just the manpower um, eluded him in the end. But as I said, looking at all the stats and all the all the numbers, if it, if you sort of blacked out the scores, I probably would have you know looked at all the numbers and suggested St Kilda had won that game. Uh, look, winning ugly, good teams can sort of eke out those and grind out those wins and, and keep pace with the, the rest of the top four. So credit to the Ds for that. Uh, Power and the Suns, I know we touched on the Suns a fair bit, but I mean, where do you want to boil it down to this? So 13 in a row for the Power. Suns were ahead at halftime and then a nine-goal quarter and to it, the Power. It, it was the lap. So again, look at a quarter by quarter, and these are Gold Coast differentials. So contested possessions, plus six, plus five, negative 19, plus four. So third quarter was negative 19. Clearances, they broke even in the first quarter, plus seven in the second, negative eight, and then plus four. Uh, inside 50s, they were negative two in the first quarter, plus one, negative 12, and then plus negative one. 12. So again, you look at all the all the numbers, and they did all right for three of those four quarters. The third quarter just killed them, and, and they could not get back into the game after that. Uh, Geelong and North Melbourne down at uh, GMHBA Stadium. Cooper Harvey, rare bright spot uh, for, for the Ruse. Jared, 14 mm. straight losses though, which has kind of fallen under the radar because of what's happening at Gold Coast, what's happening at West Coast, uh, some encouragement from Hawthorne, but uh, the Ruse are a story. Mm. Cooper Harvey was a was a positive note, as you said, a silver lining to a bad loss, but 14 losses in a row is as many losses as they had, uh, or that was their big, biggest losing stretch last year as well. So from last year, where have they actually improved well, if, yeah. other than exposing young players Cooper Harvey I think Will Phillips has played a lot more George Wardlaw is going to be a, a good player so and David Juniak had a pretty good start to the season had mm-hmm. some um, not so good moments on the weekend but other than the individual stuff and the exposing of their youth where have they actually gotten better as a football team it's a good question um, they still do have winnable games and, and you talk about just winning 
games against the teams around you. They do play Hawthorne this week at Marvel, uh, and then they play West Coast in Perth in a couple of weeks. Just looking at sort of the numbers that North has produced this year off the top of your head, Christian, are they winnable games for the for the Roos? You, you think so? Again, probably the last, you're right, probably in that losing period, especially the last eight or seven weeks, their numbers have dropped well off. So yeah. there was a lot of the... A lot of the uh, Numbers in the early rounds where, they again, a good result for North was just getting out of that bottom three. So they're ranking 12th, 11th, and 10th in a few more things. But they've all come back to about 18th, 17th, the key one. So you say it should be winnable, but they are in a pretty pretty dire spot in the last yeah, eight or nine weeks where it just doesn't seem like anything good is happening for them. They, they win those next two winnable games. We just sit here and we say, well, they just beat teams that they should have beaten. But if they lose those two games and one of them will be to West Coast, they're going to be equal on wins with West Coast. Yeah. Which is... Just not good enough. Fair enough. Uh, where was that game won and lost really quickly? Yeah, uh, so, I mean, the clearances was an interesting one. It was 20-4 to 4 out of the centre bounces, but it didn't really hurt North on the scoreboard. It was only 16 points to 12, you know, scored from the centre bounces, but it was all about territory that Geelong able, were able to own. So 70 inside 50s to 39. Um, you know, once Geelong get it, get the ball inside 50 down at GMHBA Stadium, the other team's not going to be able to do much with it. Um, but, yeah, it was the first time this year that, Two Geelong players have had 30-plus touches in a game. So, <coughs> sorry, they've uh, been a, yeah, a low-disposal team this year. I think they only had three previous games where someone had reached 30, which was one of the all-time lows. Uh, but, yeah, Myers had a career-high 32 and Duncan had 30. So, just sort of, yeah, getting the ball into some outside runners, which which Geelong had been lacking in the first part of the year, is who would, who would they give the ball to that, you know, 25, 30 times a game as every other team does? Uh, I think Mitch Duncan adds a lot there. And as you said, yeah, Cooper Harvey... Good, good start. He's not, he's not the tallest bloke running around, but five contested marks on debut, uh, the most since James Podziadli in twenty ten. But I think, age recruit. I think he was a forty five year old when he started. <laughs> so yeah, good effort by Cooper Harvey to take those five contested marks. Gee, that's a great start. Uh, Essendon versus Adelaide. Gee, it pains me as a Carlton fan, but it's good to watch the Bombers. The Bombers are playing good footy. That first term, seven goals, six, 13 scoring shots, just uh, set the tone for the match, and and they were just able to hold off any advance that Adelaide had, and and another loss for the Crows on the road. I know that we sort of weren't sure about their their road form and and if it was you know as bad as what it seemed on paper but another one and and they slip out of the eight yeah exactly a huge loss for them and and that the last probably 15 20 minutes of the game probably you know it uh flatters them a little bit the scoreline in the end so for cross the round Essendon were first for disposals across the round Adelaide were 18th um so Essendon just really high handball game um which would started it but yeah, they sort of won 99 more disposals than Adelaide, which is the second biggest differentials against Adelaide this year. Uh, plus 90 in uncontested possessions, which is the biggest against the Crows. Plus 19 in hardball gets as well. So you talk about inside-outside work, which is the biggest differential against the Crows. So they really beat up on... And as I said, the Crows have been one of those teams that the, the ball-winning factor for Adelaide has always been strong. Essendon were just able to smash you in that aspect of the game. I think it's game. D-Day this week for the Crows. If they don't beat GWS, they're not making finals. It would require them to beat either a Melbourne at the G, Brisbane at the Gabba, or Port Adelaide in a showdown. So I think this is what it comes down to for Adelaide. Interesting. Uh, Brad Scott, you got to give a bit of credit to him because I think he's, getting, um, he's squeezing every ounce of ability out of a number of players that probably are having career best years. You look at Kyle Langford, who's been kind of used as an everywhere man, but when you plonk him up forward, he's just such a smart footballer, a good size, can take a grab, is a good finisher, uh, and continues to kick bags of goals. So he was mm. a bit of a forgotten one for me. So I looked at uh, coming into the game last week, he was we had tenth, hamstring injuries. And he was, and... he was 10th in the competition for total scoreboard impact going into the round. So that's, that right? that's adding up your goals behind, your goal assist and your behind assist. Uh, he's one of the most valuable targets inside 50. But it was almost like the talk was always like, oh, Kyle Langford's just there, just holding a spot for when Peter Wright comes back, no, when Jake no, Stringer's yeah. full. Kyle Langford is your most valuable key forward. He's been Essendon, used everywhere. But I think Essendon needs to realise how, how valuable he is in front of the ball. Yeah. He, you know, his retention rate and his ability to for them to score when they go to him has been twice as good as Peter Wright since Peter Wright's been in the team. So, yeah, I think Langford's probably flying under the radar. And hopefully, I think... For the first six, seven weeks, I don't know if Essendon realised exactly what they had, um, but now I think he's playing a lot more. Well, he's more been used in defence. I think that experiment's over. They wanted to trial him as an, an inside midfielder after Joe Watson left, right. and that never worked. And now they've got Ben Hobbs there. He's probably going to yeah. assume that role. So that third tall forward role that Langford is playing just suits him to a tee. Um, other players that probably squeezing the, the best out of their abilities, Nick Martin continues to go from strength to strength. Uh, Mason Redmond having a career best year. Brandon Zirk Thatcher coming along as a key back. Talk about Hobbs. He's just 19. Mm. Um, so there's a lot to like if you're a Bombers fan. Um, 
That's for sure. Uh, and Frio versus Carlton, final game of the weekend. Blues, that's three weeks in a row now, 50-plus point winners. Uh, oh. They just do this every year, don't they? I know. I was just sort of saying it's exhausting being a Carlton supporter. <laughs> are we are we bad or are we good? I just I just want to know. But um, if you look at again, sort of taking away this this one game, uh, you look at the last three games that Carlton's won. They've won the contested possessions in each of those games. So Gold Coast, Hawthorne, Frio, uh, won the disposal efficiency, and won the score per inside fifty differential, which means their forward line was scoring more often than the opposition's forward line. So. To win all three of those stats, it's the first time they've they've only done that three other times this year, where it's around two, three, and seven. Mm-hmm. So again, that's basically breaking down of can we get the ball first, can we use it better, and can we score better than the opposition? So they've nailed those things in the last three weeks. Um, so yeah, if you look at the last three games: fourth for contested possession differential, fifth for disposal efficiency differential, and number one for score per inside fifty differential. So they're doing really well. Scoring when they get the ball inside 50 and their defence just does not concede a score down the other end. Ron Connolly wrote a piece uh, last week about the Blues and how they are nailing a number of the what we call premiership metrics. And we've talked about those on this podcast a fair bit. But th- I think three out of six they're top four in, uh, or top eight in rather. Uh, and they're not too far off the pace in another couple. Yeah, so it'll be top six that top we'll six. look at when you talk about premiership standards. So finishing in the top six and looking at previous premiers. So... Uh, again, yeah, check out Rowan's article. I think it should be up later in the week. But yeah, Carlton, as I said, their, their season profile signature is good. It's it's strong. But again, you know, we've spoken about on the pod, it's accuracy has turned, you know, really, really bad for a week or two. They got smashed in contested possessions by Melbourne, which again is the one one area of the game that they were good at. As I said, their disposal efficiency has been good for the last three weeks. It was 17% below Essendon when they played against them. So it's almost like... Each game that they've played, there's just been one or two things that's, that's fallen apart. And, and Michael Voss has been good across it. He sort of said, we know what we're doing well, and, and we know we know what our strengths and weaknesses are. We just can't put it together all in one game. And, and it seemed very much like that for Carlton, that when you look at them as a season, they yeah, a lot of top fives, a lot of top six, a lot of top seven. It's just that the one or two things that break within a game can really hurt them. Uh, Jared, do they make finals? They are currently, I think they're 11th on the ladder, but they're run home. Uh, Port Adelaide this week at Marble, massive game. Uh, yeah, and then they, they host Port. West Coast. Uh, then they play Collingwood. Then they play St Kilda. Then Melbourne, and then Gold Coast and the Giants to finish it out. So you probably say they could win four of those, and they probably yeah. need to jag a win I've against. Had a, I've had a look at the run home of all these teams in contention. I think twelve and a half wins will be eighth. Whether that's Geelong or Carlton, that half point buffer mm. or half a win buffer will get them in the eight. So. For Carlton, it means they need to win five because four wins would take them to 11 wins and a draw. So, uh, yeah, as you said, I think the Eagles, the Saints, the Suns and the Giants are what I would call the should-win games where they probably start favourites. But, geez, that Gold Coast and Jet, I guess, Fortnite <laughs> has, banana, pe- that has banana peel written all over it. So oh, it I think, yeah, that, they can win those four definitely, particularly with the way that they're playing. So they would need to upset Power, Pies or Ds. And I think they're a massive chance against Port Adelaide this week. Uh, just looking at the matchup. Yes, uh, we talked about Frio off the top. So, um, anything else to note from from Frio? Just how sort of they've struggled against, especially against the Blues. They just couldn't get it going. Yeah, again, it's just probably the ball movement which um, eluded them. But yeah, as I said, a lot of their stuff was basically on the in, on the quarter quarter time stuff, and it just got smashed in the first quarter once again, which we spoke about earlier. Getting into red time of this podcast, proudly sponsored by Subway, which means it's time for is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? Uh, one for you to get it underway, Walshy. The AFL and Marvel Stadium must do more to ensure sellouts actually fill the stadium after the Dons and Crows uh, drew a crowd of 39,000 people. Uh, absolutely, that is justified. It is a disgrace that a sellout does not even have a four at the start of that stadium. That stadium holds 54,000 people uh, for football games. And looking around, and look, the Essendon members area wasn't quite full. Um, but there needs to be a, a way for members to resell their tickets to people who want them because general tickets were sold out. And if you looked at the the broadcast side where the Medallion Club is, the Medallion Club's the biggest culprit of this week in, week out. So you can have a sellout of all general tickets, but there are going to be seats in the Medallion Club that are empty. And that's just not good enough. And I think Marvel Stadium and the AFL need to come to a solution or a compromise that if Medallion Club members aren't going to show up, those tickets get sold because too many families were locked out. I, I had people... Talk, uh, responding to me on Twitter when I posted about this saying that um, they couldn't get four tickets together for their family so they had to buy two lots of two or they could only get single seats uh, and then you look on the broadcast and there are almost rows empty in this uh, it's it's a disgrace and unfortunately it's not on and AFL and Marvel Stadium must fix so please do 
Jazzy, after we dunked on him last week, <laughs> Melbourne must persist with Christian Petrarca forward now that Bailey Fritch is out for two months. Nah, that's hyperbole. I think keep your keep your best forwards in the midfield. I know we kicked four goals uh, against keep the your Saints. Best forwards in the midfield. Uh, your best players in the midfield, sorry. You know what I'm saying, Roshi. Uh, no, he kicked four goals against the Saints, but he's not going to do that every week. We spoke about his inaccuracy last week. There's going to be a game where he might kick one three instead of four straight. Yes, he's a weapon down there, and he plays like a natural forward. He's that real hybrid type of player that can play anywhere and damage a game, obviously. But I just think against a team like Brisbane, there, there might be a stage, especially with Clayton Oliver not out there, where you're going to need... Petrarca in the guts so I think they need to find different ways around uh, fixing their scoring woes so they probably need more out of Ben Brown he's kicked three goals in three weeks which probably isn't uh, a return that they want from your your now number one key forward uh, obviously Jacob Van Ruin was dropped in the VFL but you know Josh Shackey kicked four in the VFL on the weekend I mean does he get another go do you just trial it when you're leading into finals just see what he can do get Ben Brown with another key forward pairing instead of Petrarca I think you try that first before you just rely on a pure midfielder like Petrarca forward obviously it's an asset to have him I don't think they need to keep him down there though any thoughts, Christian? You're a stats man. Exactly. The, the the accuracy is the one that concerns me. He was so inaccurate, and and that's not a you know. Two of his four goals were from the goal square. Yeah, too. he's been inaccurate <laughs> so. for three or four years. So, and again, such a great clearance and assist player that again, it probably worked for one week, but I, I want him dishing it off further no. up in the. We're still dunking on him then. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, the AFL should face face the wrath of the Cats fans and just move the Essendon game to the MCG. Oh. No, I mean, it's it's locked in, isn't it? What, they're going to change it in five days leading into Saturday? Uh, what are they going to get? So there's 20,000 20, 20, 20, there? 20,000 Geelong fans. How, are many, you, how many are you locking out? And, and look, oh, Cats fans are going to come for me on this one, but nah, the place starting. is not ready. No. The, the idea the, of they, this fixture was that the, the, the stands were going to be ready and they could have a full house. Yeah, so it's who's, not ready. Who's responsible for that, though? So uh, I don't know who, who answers to that yet. Obviously, it's, it's ideal to, to play this in... A full capacity stadium. I don't mind the Bombers playing there. Even no, as an either. Essendon fan, traveling down there and as an away trip, hostile environment, winning down there would, would be quite a good feeling. But uh, yeah, obviously these two teams would draw a crowd of 80,000 plus at the MCG. So uh, it's not ideal that they are playing in Geelong in a stadium that's nowhere near complete as far as I'm concerned when I'm watching it on the telly. So yep. yeah, 20,000 people watching the Bombers in Geelong is really unfortunate for two teams that are in form and fighting for finals. Uh, for what it's worth, I think that it's Geelong's home game. They could play it down at Corio for all they care. And uh, yep. if they want to get 5,000 there to there, that's fine. That's their prerogative. So um, enjoy, Cats fans. I'm sure it means that uh, you're more likely to win than if it was at the G, that's for sure. Uh, footy tips. Don't forget to get your tips in. Uh, Thursday night footy again this week. Uh, and if you want to get in contact with us, we're at Footy Tips on Twitter. You can leave us some questions or questions for Christian. You can leave us some comments or give us some feedback as well. Uh, Gents, thanks for joining us. And to everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.